Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Nana. How are you? Hi, Andrew. Good, thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm a bit tired, actually, flying back from Sydney yesterday. It was a fun time. Yeah, doing a lot of travelling recently. It's very exhausting. Yeah, it's delivering all the presents. <laughs> Joey's took it with the animal shaver. You got a jolly belly though. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, let's now that we've done the individual stuff, uh, let's move on. Pretty exciting, secure jobs is yeah. through, so is respective work. Let's just remind you really around secure jobs legislation, the fair work. So there's um, no pay secrecy clauses coming yeah. into effect. Now remember that deals with from the time date of proclamation, which we suspect will be before the end of the year. We're not sure about that. Yeah, we're still waiting for still it. Still waiting for it. We've got the sexual harassment part, of which is... All the new claims yeah, that they the can pro- get through the courts yep. as well. We've got fixed-term contracts, which looks like it's going to be put off for another 12 months. But yeah, so once you- it comes to effect, it's delayed for 12 months. Yeah, and yeah. what that means is you're going to have two continuous um, fixed-term contracts, but a no greater period than two years. Yep. After that, we've Multi-bargaining got... Multi-bargaining employer agreements. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big one. <laughs> yeah. And common interest test, we've told you about that, has been diluted and made almost impossible to comprehend by the POCOC amendment. So we'll see more light about that. And the last one is the flexible working empowerment, which is coming. Mm-hmm. So, and respective work, we, we understand that is coming through. That'll be law in the new year as well. Yep. And we'll send you an update, like a summary document on all these changes in the new year. And probably I think we should stop at respect of working to say how disappointing it really is as a piece of legislation that it's such a tepid response to a problem because yeah. we'll come to the, the Australian Human, whatever the name of their the survey. The Australian Human Rights Commission, Commission, most recent survey. Yeah, which just shows almost no changes in the in the frightening levels of sexual harassment that occurs and the damage that it does. Yep, but what I it reflects overwhelmingly is that women are not litigators by nature and they're not complainers. And they've been taught not to be because when they do, they actually get victimised for it. That's part of the reason. And yet the whole respect of work is built around a proposition that women will complain and litigate rather than using the safety methodology which says if someone raises a complaint of sexual harassment, it should be a notifiable matter. We've got something like it in the ACT, ACT. which is sexual assault. And almost something in Victoria coming. (laughs) And almost something in Victoria but not the same. But this is a response which shows that We've had two or three years of really strong focus on gender equality, not delivered, protection against sexual harassment, discrimination, not delivered. And this legislation really won't take us much further, I'm afraid. Yeah, hopefully it's just a step, though. Like we'll start seeing more of the uniformity between safety and employment law. And sure. Yeah, we can be hopeful. Yeah, sure. It's going to be positive. Okay. <laughs> I can't see it happening. All right, the next topic is just a little one, which is really about where inflation is going for our EBA rates. Probably three months ago, you were hearing that it's 5% this year, probably 7.5% next year. And most of that was built off a proposition that our economy is driven from Europe and America, and that's more of an historical tie rather than economic truth. But in fact, our supply chain, our input costs are much more Asian-based, and our economies are much more closely linked to Asia, which is actually not enjoying or not enjoying the same problems with inflation and supply chain has improved dramatically with an increase in the level of boxes and the dropping in prices around container boxes by nearly 300% over the last two or three months. So what Australia has actually seen, except for fuel and energy costs, which are massive, is 
a slowing down in inflation and likely that we'll see a decline in EA rates if we're negotiating correctly, 2023, 24 or 25, down to about three and a half as the mean rate for in wow. 2025. So I want people to be really careful about not agreeing to stuff they shouldn't have. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a time if you're worried about it, do a two-year. If you're not, if you want to do a three or four year, we'll do it with the floating CPI rate. You'd be safe, should be safe with it. But if not, look at around about 4.5% for next year and around about 3.5% the year so as a maximum, and you should be fine. All right, can I go over to the Burke Pocock and Spender Award Review? Now, they're the people who are allowing the Labor platform, which is a bit of a pincer movement, really, <laughs> to spread old fashioned general awards with multi employee agreements coming on this side. Yeah. And now, Bert. Burke has talked about new awards, and yeah. we, we hoped, that's Nina and I, <laughs> that it would be to further simplification of awards, but we were wrong. By uh, stealth, what they're looking at is, is spreading the base of awards into yeah. new industry, and Pocock's very strong on the niche industries. Yeah. So for Parliament to review the awards instead of the Fair Work Commission doing it and simplifying the awards but also creating brand-new awards for really niche industries, and we're thinking probably in the tech area. Yeah. where it's very unregulated at the moment. So that sounds good, but once again, it takes away skilled people from doing the job of determining what's and reverts it back to a politicised environment, unhealthy, destructive, and a breach of actually protection and powers because we're yeah. not meant, you know, this is not where we want government fiddling. But the real risk about this is we will see by stealth the reintroduction of general awards to and, cover all areas. And over-regulation. And over-regulation. Yeah. Okay, that's just a brief thing, just <laughs> telling where it's at. We're about six or 12 months away from seeing the teeth descend from the jaw on that one. <laughs> Nina, this is yours, the next one, which is the, oh, yeah, the naughty one. director. Yeah. yeah, so a director got fined 25000 and I think the employer was fined 170000 and basically he's been underpaying these employees, I think flat rate of 15 to $17 per hour, and the Berwick Ombudsman commenced an investigation, and as soon as he found out about it, instead of coming clean, he decided to fudge his records to show they were working less hours, which is why they were getting paid those amounts. Obviously, clearly dishonest conduct, and yeah, got fined accordingly. Yeah, and that was half of the maximum fine, I should say, yeah. both were half. The reason Nina and I have raised this is not that any of you are dishonest, but dishonesty is a bit like pregnancy. You're not a little bit pregnant and you're not a little bit dishonest. And there's a lot of times when a regulator comes knocking that people will, by omission, provide some documents, not other documents. They'll do little things, which actually is a matter of law or dishonest. Yeah. And what I want you to do is not provide anything to get advice, not necessarily from us, but please don't do a little bit dishonest because a little bit dishonest just means a little bit smaller fine. It yeah. doesn't mean you don't have a conviction. And the Fair Work Ombudsman have made it clear that they are pursuing dishonesty. It's one of their big focus items for enforcement. Okay. The big, 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 big safety issues coming through. <laughs> Two of <laughs> Many them. Many big. Yeah. But, look, let's talk about this, this contractor issue of Synergy Scaffold. Nina, their principal contractor has already received a fine of about $900,000. Synergy was the scaffold business who put up the scaffold. What did they do wrong? Well, they identified there were many risks, other people were taking off scaffolding ties, all the scaffolds were overloaded, there weren't any transforms. They were aware of all these risks. They flagged it with the principal contractor and the control was they were supposed to do inspections. None of these inspections, none of these walkthroughs were done in the three weeks leading up to the accident. So, of course, 
it was bound to collapse. It's the, lar- yeah, the largest fine in New South Wales. $2 million. $2 million for reckless is- endangerment, which means a knowledge of a serious risk of injury or death, and then indifferent to the act- to that actively occurring. The facts Nina gave a show that's so obvious and yeah. so bad. But the part that I want to do is for those people who keep believing that by contracting out there is no liability, the principal contractor is fined $900,000. Yeah. So don't, mistake. <laughs> yeah, don't think you can easily contract out. And when you're aware of a failure and you don't order a stop order, you don't say stop. As the principal contractor, you're gone. Yeah. And can I just say, like, to Andrew's point, we're seeing it very common that it's being built into contracts that the safety obligation is being designated to one person. It doesn't matter what you write. None of those clauses have any effect. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, now over to South Australia. So we're travelling around the continent. <laughs> South Australia have flagged that they're going to do an industrial Finally. Market. Finally, yeah. about it, but yeah. finally. So yeah. it's only half an hour behind in time, but <laughs> three years behind industrial manslaughter. But... <laughs> They've decided to do something a little bit extra, haven't they? They've yeah. done, added three extra parts to their industrial manslaughter. Yeah, it covers injuries now, so silica, asbestos, COVID, things like that will be can be directly so linked. So incremental to methods of death. Yep. Yeah, industrial manslaughter. The penalties will be twenty million, and I think. 15, 20 years, 20 jail, years jail and $15 million. You can't do an enforceable undertaking to get out of it. Just so you understand, enforceable undertakings are almost never given for yeah. serious ones, but this is the first one that said that no. That has actually said no. And they've really interestingly opened it up so anyone can raise with the regulator, hey, this incident has happened and I think you need to prosecute them for industrial manslaughter. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Just recently, a Labor state, so we're starting to once again to see the drawing in of unions and families into yep. the prosecution process. Families is a big one, yeah. yeah. And we've seen that in other jurisdictions that this opening up to families and yep. to, to unions to be able to take on a prosecutorial role as well. Yeah, I will say that it is limited to between six to 12 months after the incident, so it's not ongoing forever. Yeah, whereas for everyone else it's two years. Yeah. What I want to say about this is, look, Really good on one level. But now we have jurisdictions with different penalties in every jurisdiction we've got. So no, there's no alignment. We've now got <laughs> South good, Australia pushing the boundary towards dust-based injuries. We've got rules around unforced bonds saying it's just bloody nonsense. We work across every state you know, yeah. and every territory. Surely, and this is what Albanese government said, we want to address this. We wanted the model health, which yeah. still excludes Victoria because Victoria won't adopt it. Good on you, Victoria. But then Albanese says we want a reverse onus test. In other words, for the most serious crime, you take away the, the general probative duties that yeah. going, he who alleges must prove to all the, the regulator has to do. Now, can I just remind you about the reverse onus jurisdictions? New South Wales used to make money out of prosecutions 10 years ago because they had a reverse onus jurisdictions just for primary duties. So they litigated everything because it was very hard for organisations to prove they hadn't breached not hard for the regulator to prove they had. This sort of social engineering inside industrial manslaughter for the most serious is the one place it shouldn't be. So, look, we'll wait and see. Yeah. But it is a very concerning development. If Labor <sighs> press ahead with that, that would be that would be terrible. Now, we've got some interesting data comes through from workers' comp from Safe Work Australia. Yeah, we can definitely see that serious claims are increasing. But when it comes to psychological claims, 
they make up about 9% of the total serious claims from the last 10 years. But it's definitely increasing year on year. And, and I, I just say with that, Nina, if you look over the last 10 years, up until four years ago, it was 6%. Yeah. So we're actually running at 12% throughout Australia at the moment. And that's why it's brought up to nine over a 10-year period. Yeah. But the claims period is the concern, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The median time loss is an average of 30.8 last year, which is far beyond anything. So can you understand? And that's the premium impact. Yeah. So it used to be 6% of total claims made and accepted where psychological injury is the primary cause, which represented about 21% of total claims cost. We're now seeing that grow well past that. And we're looking at 2030 of up to 30% of total claims being psychological claims. It's going to be an insurance nightmare in 2030. Let's move on. So we come to the major topic for today. And it's odd that we're talking about this, Nina, I've got to tell you, but it's pretty important that we are. We've seen probably in the last six to eight weeks, 10 to 15 matters of discipline go wrong. Yeah. We're involved in, I think on my last count, about six investigations, and all of them as we go through this process miss some of the fundamentals. But let's just go to the case that tells the story, which is what provoked me to send you a text about 10 o'clock at night and say, <laughs> have you read this, Nina? <laughs> which is Nikovsky in the Department of Justice. Talk us through the facts on that. Yeah, so it was an anti-vax, well, kind of anti-vax case. He didn't get vaccinated. He got his first vaccination, had a really adverse reaction, tried to seek his second one in line with the requirements of the Victorian Government Department, I think, and was actually knocked back by the vaccine hub because they said, you need to get more medical tests and we can't do this for you. Went back to his employer and they said, no, we need you to have two vaccinations. He said, look, can I do something else? Can you transfer to me to another role? I'm willing to work. They said, no, we're just going to fire you. <laughs> <laughs> no, clear process, didn't follow their policy, just and shocking. You, none of you would be surprised to learn they completely lost. They just got hammered. Oh. And they got hammered for this because he actually did have good evidence as to why he couldn't do it and it was lawful for him not to do it. In fact, it was entirely appropriate for him not to do it. Secondly, they didn't even follow their own policies about alternative duties, nor did they follow down the path of any of the evidence to determine when and if he could get a vaccination and how they would manage an interim. So they never created the plan around the problem they had. No, and the other thing was he caught COVID during the process and so the doctor said that for a four-month period after getting COVID, he was completely safe to work. And they ignored that and said, no, yeah. you still can't work. Just now, I know when we're saying this to you, you're going to say, oh, we never do that. <laughs> <laughs> we never do that. We're very good. We never do it. Well, I put the children through university and private school as a result of people saying they never do that. <laughs> so, look. The things I want to say are really dumb things and that's not unusual and for obvious me. obvious things yeah. for most of you. Yeah. It's just a good reminder for Christmas. What, what, what is the wrong thing that occurred and how wrong is it? And I want you to just sit in a room quietly, remove the red flag hat that the person's wearing you don't like and go, okay, what have we done with that in the past? When someone's done that, what have we done with that in the past? Okay. Okay. Well, we didn't sack that person, but I like them. <gasps> Big warning. The next red thing flag, is yeah. what is the evidence? Do you have direct evidence? Yeah. You know, not circumstantial, not people saying, oh, I I think I heard this. What is the actual evidence? All of them, and I see the handwritten notes, I see all the witness statements that come in, but it's not evidence. Most of it's impression. Yeah, and you have to test the evidence, you know, see if other people can 
agree that this happened or go to the person being accused because they might have another explanation. Yeah, this is sort of like the Hawthorne Football Club racism where they interviewed a group of Indigenous players and then didn't test it against non-Indigenous people yeah. and said it was racism. So you have to take the evidence and actually test it. Yeah. Okay? So once you've got the evidence, and if we look at the case we're talking about, there was very clear evidence the person had an illness there was a response which was dangerous to them. There was clear evidence if they had have gone to the doctor what the impact of a second vaccination would be. There was clear evidence about the fact that he had COVID and the level of immunity he gave him and safe to work. Gee, there are lots of things you'd want to be listening to, aren't they? And you've got the power under BHP and Grant to go and say, well, look, I need that independently verified. Yeah. So you could say And that. he gave them that information. Yeah. <laughs> and still not happen. And you've clearly, once you're seized with that information, got to look at a work, a way of doing reasonable adjustments around it. Discrimination law, none of it's that happened. So I've done all that. I've got to the position. I know what's wrong. I know how wrong it is. I've gone and got what the evidence is. Yep, it's sort of lining up. Then I've got to look at the personal record of the person. How long have they worked for me? Have they been a good employee? If it's an obvious wrong, then I should say quite clearly, and I must say in an interview process, look, Nina, you've done this. Is there anything happening at home or outside yeah, of work? Yeah, extenuating circumstances. Yeah. People never consider that. Yeah, and we keep finding out about it at the commission at conciliation yeah. where the person comes along and said, you know, my partner left me. Or I just had someone die in the family. family. And, yeah. yeah, I did drink the night before and I was angry and I didn't have control of it. Yeah. I've had two weeks of counselling, whatever. Then, okay, I've got all of that. Then I go through my policies and procedures and I tick each part with a checklist and go, what do I have to do? Yeah, and that's a key thing that people forget. Like when you're doing the investigation, put it to them whether they know the policy. Have they had training on it or is it something they've never seen before? You'd be surprised how many times they claim that they've never seen it yeah. before. But what I want you to do before you start any form of investigation or disciplinary process is create a checklist that goes through your own policies and procedures of what you have to do. Because remember, yeah. under workers' compensation law, which is dodgy law, I accept, and doesn't follow normal workplace law, a failure to follow your own projects will completely knock out reasonable management action as an yep. Okay? Now, then look at what are the other risks that exist as you're going to run this process. Is the person, is it a red flag? Are they going to allege halfway through that you're bullying them? Yeah. What is the workers' comp risk that looks so? How am I going to offer them support along the way? Yeah. You know, when I say look, Nina, I think you've done this. I need to stand you down for a while. But look, here's the EAP. Did I give you a support? Yeah, are they present? showing signs of distress? What are they yeah. doing? Okay. So plan it around risk before you start. All these are the things you should think about before you start. Then put everything you do in writing and ensure the person is enabled to have a support person. Is able to have a support mm. person. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was very late last time. And then make sure you implement the right outcome. So considering all those risks, and it's very easy, I think, to focus on the valid reason. And most of the time, you will have a clear valid reason. They had a so very remember your valid five tests. Here. Five tests are valid reason, which is a threshold test. Yeah. In other words, is it something that someone has done wrong, which warrants discipline? That's just the test. Yes, yep. it does. Got that. Yep. I get over the threshold and I have, is there a fair process in place? And that's measured in part, but you must look at the process, which is the tick list. Yep. Is it harsh, personal circumstances? That's where most of okay. the matters fall over. Yeah. Is it unjust? Are you wrong in law in what you're doing? Is it unreasonable? Does the punishment fit the crime? As Nina said, you've got to put those, they're like cards on a table. You've got to yeah. pick them up and go, valid? Yes. 
Did we have a fair process? Yes, I can demonstrate we had a fair process. Good. Is it harsh? Is what we're doing going to be harsh to this person because of what? What do I know about this? What are the questions I'm going to ask? Did I do the investigation the right way? Are the allegations I'm making true? And if they're not true and I still disagree, I'm being unjust. So I must be lawfully right in what I'm doing. And finally, punishment fit the crime. But the one thing I want you all to do is to keep contemporaneous records of every conversation (laughs) that you have with people because that is the one exception to the hearsay rule. It is evidence of the truth. Your brain after a period of 24 to 48 hours actually distorts truth. So it is actually very reliable, good documents which the court likes to see and lawyers love to see them because it allows to give you the best advice. Yeah, anything you can note down would be the best. And remember condemnation, okay? In other words, if you've allowed Nina to get away with something but I don't let Matt to get away with it, then I'm afraid Matt's going to be okay. If I say to Nina nothing and she comes into work four days late and on the fifth day so I'm going to give you a warning, Nina goes, the last four days you've said it's fine. Every time you allow something, you can't punish to it, which means you need to draw a line in the sand. Condemnation has one twist, which we'll talk about a little bit later, (laughs) which is condemnation will prevent disciplinary processes unless the wrong is so profound that that you're there to protect a person, then condemnation may mitigate the discipline you can take, but it won't stop it. So be aware of condemnation. Right, I think it's a good topic. I've got to tell you because it's one that takes up, I reckon, 20% of our life as lawyers is dealing with people, doing the best they can with badly behaving people, yeah. but getting some part of it wrong and finding they're in the Fair Work Commission. Yeah, I think it's very easy to get bogged down in how wrong the misconduct is or the past history and ignore the other factors, but they are just as important, yeah. and that's the key message. Go back to process. Yeah. The tick box that we talked about is once you start doing that, the rest speaks for itself, and then have your five cards in front of you, yeah. valid, fair, harsh, unjust, reasonable, pick them up, look at them and speak to them. <laughs> All right, we're going to go over the case study. All right. So Janine was an assistant operator on a stack-type flexo-press. She worked alongside her girlfriend, Jasmine. They worked at the Hot Press Printers in Carnegie. The women were both aged 25. Over 80% of the production employees were males over 40. The managing director, operations manager and supervisors all knew it was a robust place for people to work. Swearing was common but not abuse. It was a friendly but very male workforce. Sexualised commentary was prevalent and engaged in by all levels of management. It was rarely directed at any one woman, but because of the two women's age, they did frequently get sexualised jokes about their weekends, boyfriends and the like. They managed it all right, both disliked it, but understood best not to cause a problem. At the Christmas party, Shane, a supervisor, told Janine how hot she was and asked her for a date. Janine said no to the date and told him to sober up and stop it. An hour later, Shane was far worse for wear with all the beer he had consumed and came back to Janine. He was angry now and had been for about 30 minutes. He told others that Janine was a bitch and frigid. One of the people he told was Wilbur, the managing director, who laughed and told him to wake up to himself. When he came back to Janine, he was slurring his words, angry but also crying, and shattered her. What makes you so hot and good you think you can laugh at me offering you a date? Others intervened. He was clearly distressed. The following day, Wilbur, using good process, terminated Shane's employment summarily. All right, question one. Would Shane have a good argument to claim under unfair dismissal and what would he get if he won? Ten years of unblemished history of service. His wife ran off with his best friend the morning before the Christmas party. So we had a total disagreement about this. <laughs> because I feel like he should not win an unfair dismissal. He clearly engaged in sexual harassment. But you're right, if we apply the five cards, that's where 
it comes by. So got the valid reason. Yeah, very, okay. very valid reason. Good fair process. Yes. Harsh, 10 years of unblemished history. And his wife ran off his best friend the morning of. Yeah, okay. You didn't find out about that when you did the thing, but had you asked him, you would have found out about it, so you're in a strike. But the big stinker, the big stinker is the unreasonable part of it because there's condemnation. Yeah, it's clearly a workplace where sexual harassment occurs on a regular basis. And where Wilbur knew the misbehaviour, knew they were drunk, and the condemnation has another twist in the case called Keenan. That is, if you have a Christmas party and you allow alcohol on it, it's going to be very hard for you to defend an alcohol-fueled occasion because it's your fault. Yeah. Okay, so he would win this, and what he'd win is only compensation. With 10 years, he'd probably get eight to 10 weeks. Yeah, definitely no reinstatement. There'd be no reinstatement. Okay. Two, what impact would the new respected work and secure jobs legislation have on Shane's unfair dismissal claim, particularly the positive duty under the Respect Bill? Okay, that's the positive duty to prevent sexual harassment and the prohibition under secure jobs of sexual harassment. And mm -hmm. remember, there's also under the respected work, there's also the hostile work environment yep. arguments, which makes it illegal to do that. I think we need to go to the next part because I think there's two parts to this question. So can we go up a slide? No, it's no, not. Okay, no. so it's just I think it. the main thing is, well, under all the new changes, Let's go sexual harassment is serious misconduct. It's, it's per se. Yeah. And also, you know, there's higher duties now under the new legislation with positive duty and the hostile work environment to stamp out sexual harassment. So it doesn't matter if he's condoned it in the past. I think the seriousness of it outweighs that. Yeah, so you're right. Now there is there is a calibrating up of the nature of serious of non-touch sexual harassment, okay? Yeah. It's... As it should be. Yeah, no, at its lowest level, which is a hostile work environment, unlawful. At that level, it is by definition serious misconduct and therefore it dilutes the impact or mitigates the impact of condemnation. There would still be problems around the use of alcohol as a prominent issue here, okay? So an unfair dismissal claim, he may lose it when the new legislation comes through. I think he'd still probably just get over the line, to be honest, but it would be a much closer thing. Crazy. Right, Queensland legislation, by the way, it utterly mitigates the factors after valid reason because in the public sector up there, their change of legislation make it very clear that there is no, there will be no defence to sexual harassment effectively. Let's go to question three. You might read this, sir. So if Janine brought an application under secure jobs to stop the conduct, could she also bring anti-discrimination proceedings? Yeah, the answer is no. No, yeah. yeah, yeah. But <laughs> New I, changes. I, I'm not sure that's right. We might come back to it. <laughs> I think Matt and I need to have another fight about it, but I think the answer is because under the jurisdiction you can also seek damages under that jurisdiction, you can't have it in two different jurisdictions. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Right. So if Janine brought proceedings for discrimination and harassment under the Australian Human Rights Commission Act and the conduct occurred after respect at work commences, what claims would she make? All right, interesting case, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So she'd do hostile workplace? She could make a stop. Let's talk about the cause of action, though. She could say hostile workplace. Mm -hmm. Very, very powerful at that stage, okay, because yeah. what it shows is that the organisation can't control the misconduct. And breach of positive duty. Well. Breach of positive duty and then quite deliberately a highly particularised sexually harassment process that occurred and discrimination that occurred by the nature of gender. So really powerful claim would get an injunction or a stop order very, very easily because of the hostile workplace. Yeah, and she could bring it directly to the courts if she gets the injunction as Which well. Is, and once you get to the court, it has to settle. But what's really important about this is what is a damages claim? So 
Yeah. If we take this to the point of trial, her legal costs before trial would be two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand you'd have to pay. Her general damages would be north of two hundred thousand dollars given the nature of what has occurred over a long period of time. Certainly nothing less than one hundred and fifty. And her economic loss would be nothing under half a million dollars. And you'd have to pay for her costs too. That's right. So yeah. you're looking at eight hundred to nine hundred thousand dollars around this claim because of the historical nature of a hostile workplace, yeah. the continued fail failure of a positive duty, and then specific allegations that relate to provable and identifiable events where you laughed and scoffed at them and failed to do it. So you're in a lot of trouble. So there was a detailed policy about work functions at Hot Press. The policy said no alcohol was to be served at work functions. Shane's supervisor, Dale, knew of Shane's matrimonial problems in the morning, knew Shane attended work affected by alcohol that morning and was very distressed and knew he was a recovering alcoholic. He had seen Shane at his worst at a prior place of employment when they worked together. He misguidedly thought the party would help him. What? (laughs) So the answer is, to all the next questions, the answer is yes. Would he have a successful dismissal claim? Yes, he would. And next, the next slide. Next slide. Could he mount a successful adverse action claim based on his alcoholism? Yes, he could. And Undoubtedly would be at risk come safety law. He's exposing <laughs> him to risk. And intending Christmas Christmas with alcohol being served as a psychological hazard? Yes, it yes. is. I just want to really ram that home because we're just about Christmas. If you serve alcohol at a Christmas party when you know it changes people's behaviour, it is a psychological hazard. And if you don't have a control, you're in trouble. And that's it, folks. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a thumbs up. (laughs) See you later. Bye-bye.